Thank you. So the reading's Psalm 33. It's page 560 in uh, the Church uh, Bible. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfading love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Good morning. Please uh, open up your Bibles and back to Psalm 33. It's in the middle of the Bible. Um, would appreciate it if you've got that on your lap. And as you turn to that, please, um, let's have some answers from the floor. If I say to you one word, I want your immediate response. Okay, what's the first thing you think about, the first person, the first organization you think about when I say this word? Ready? Power. Power. Who? Oh, shouting from the floor. I was going to restate. Trump. Trump is from Lancashire, apparently. No, Donald Trump, maybe. Uh, who else? Power Rangers. Power Rangers. Thank you. Showing your age, Dave. Uh, anyone else? Lucas Aid. Aid. Gives you power or wings. That's Red Bull. Anyone else? Anything else? The gym. The gym. Revealing what you do. Okay. Your dad Nap. takes you to the gym. Nap. Nap. <laughs> <laughs> um, here are some. Uh, James and I didn't compare notes. So apparently this Endgame film, whatever it's about, is popular. Doesn't interest me, but it's earned a lot of money for a lot of people. And a lot of people get a lot of pleasure. Donald Trump is there, of course. Mrs. May is there for a while. Um, there's a judge, bottom left-hand corner. They have power and authority. Um, for good or for real, and does anybody, Dave, recognise that lady top right-hand corner? She's a police officer. Come on. Thank you. Dave, you've uh, just had your paid dot. Power. Power is very, very attractive. It's very persuasive. It can be used for a lot of good, and it can be used for a lot of ill. There's a new book. Well, it's, it's new to me. A couple of years old by a man called Ben Judah. This is London. It's a wonderful book. 
that uh, describes how the demographic has changed in London. Geography hasn't really changed, but the social makeup of London has changed dramatically in the last 10, 15 years. So in the shadow of Grenfell, where that atrocity happened uh, a few years ago, there are million pound houses um, that were vacant, but were not allowed to be used by those people who were homeless. That's a complex issue, but you get the point. Ben Judah is saying, London was Victorian, now it's gone through significant change, but actually, the stratification, the division in society that you see now in modern London is just like a return to the Victorian era. It's a very interesting book that describes how hard it is to understand London and how much money and power can be seen in a very different place to Epsom. It's called London, we're just on the outskirts. Power is persuasive and pervasive in London, the seat of power, the seat of authority, the House of Commons, the House of Lords, and so on. But for all the people that have power, there are many people that need advocacy. Not everybody has power. And there's a huge definition that needs to be worked upon, I think, that power, power is the ability to do something you want to do. Power is the ability to do something that you want to do, that you dream of doing. I want to build a house but I haven't got the skills, so I can't do it. Um, I want to go to the moon, I haven't got the resources, so I can't. I want to rescue that person, but I haven't got the skills, so I can't. Power is the ability to dream something, but then having dreamt it, to do it. And lots of us, there's a difference between our ability to do something and our dreams. There's a dissonance, there's a distance. Look at Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. Here is a God who speaks and immediately stars and galaxies are made. Here is a God whose powerful arm is so great he can gather up the oceans and put them into a jam jar on his work surface, in his kitchen, so to speak. There is a power and a majesty, says the Bible and says Psalm 33, that belongs to God and to God alone. We've got to understand that. It's a psalm about God's power, but it's also a psalm towards the end. There's a power that belongs only to God and there's a power that belongs only to man or to men and to women. Those are the two headings. There's a power that belongs to God. There's a power that belongs to man, men and women. There's a power that belongs to God. There's a power this psalm in the Bible reveals from beginning to end. There's a power that belongs only to God. It's absolute. It's incalculable. It's majestic. And this psalm describes it. Verse 6. The word of the Lord, by the power of God, the word of the Lord, expressed in the heavens were made. He breathed out the stars. Verse 9. God spoke and it came to be. Verse 11. The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. So there's the definition that we are working on. Um, power is dreaming something, wanting to do something, and then having the ability to do it. So if you lack power, you desire to do something, but don't have the ability to do it, you fall short. I'd love to um, be an Olympic ski jumper, says Eddie the Eagle Edwards, and after many uh, breaking of limbs and a great cost, he managed to do it to the humour and recognition of the world. I would love to do this, I'd love to do that, but many of us fall short. Here is a psalm that says, God never, ever falls short. Whatever he wants to do, he has the power to do it. When he speaks, oceans are formed. When he speaks, 
galaxies are put in place. As he speaks, he sustains the galaxies that he formed into being. Every one of us has a gap. Yeah? I'd love to run 100 meters by lunchtime. I can, I can do that. I'd love to do 100 meters in under 10 seconds. No chance. Never any chance, not even when I was fit. But here's the point. God, for God, there's no gap, says Psalm 33. Whatever he wants to do, because his power is absolute, because it's unboundless, he can do whatever he wants. His desires and his actions are together. No disparity, no difference. His plans are the same as his intentions. And we just look at the world around us to see that. Verse 9, God speaks, and it is, says the psalm. When he intends something, it's as good as done. There's a book written 300 years ago by a man called Stephen Charnock. It's called The Existence and Attributes of God. He says this, the power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring into pass, he can make happen whatsoever. His infinite wisdom may direct and whatsoever his infinite purity of his will may resolve. In other words, God can do whatsoever he pleases. He has, he has that much power at his disposal. When he says something, it happens. Verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. He breathed out the stars. Verse 9, he spoke and it came to be. Verse 11, the plans of the Lord stand firm. He can do whatsoever he wants. Daniel chapter 4 says this as well as, as, well as the whole Bible. But Daniel 4 says God is in heaven. That's where he lives. He does whatsoever pleases him. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And what's interesting for you to read Daniel 4 is who says that? Those are the words of King Nebuchadnezzar, <coughs> as a Frenchman would say. Nebuchadnezzar was the, one of the greatest kings the world has ever seen. He was brought low under the mighty hand of God. And when God um, raises him up again, restores him to his right mind, one of the first things he says is this. God is so great. He's so majestic. He's so powerful. He can do whatever pleases there's no gap, no mind the gap here. Whatever God wishes to do, he has the power and authority to do it. Total power. That's the God of the Bible. Verse 11, his power is inescapable. His plans stand firm. Verse 10 says he can foil the plans of nations. He can frustrate little kings and queens. He thwarts the purposes of people. He has immense inescapable, total power. Stephen Charnock, 300 years ago, says again, the holiness of God, the holiness of God is a word that's used to describe the beauty of his attributes, of God's nature. His power, his power, says Charnock, is the effective realising of his attributes. This is what I mean. So without God's power, his mercy would be feeble. Do you see that? He'd want to show mercy to people, but he doesn't have the power to do it. His promises, if God did not have the power that he has, they'd just be sentiments. His justice that we thought about last week, it'd just be like a scarecrow. He'd just be a straw man. If God did not have power, he'd actually be cruel because he'd be promising something, but he can't deliver. 
God's power is infinite. It's incomprehensible. God's power is eternal. It can't be limited. Like a car, you'd be put a limit on so you can go, you know, this, this van can only go 60 miles an hour and you're on the motorway and you're thinking, oh, come on. God's power is unchecked. God's power is unlimited. God's power is total and pure and incalculable. And because God is all-powerful, that means his attributes are true and he can realise whatever he promises. And you think, so what? So what? Well, this is the so what. There's nothing more important for you and I to grasp than this truth, that God is a God of all power. He can realise whatever he wants. I uh, saw a a prayer letter from a friend of mine who's in uh, Togo, Benin, so that's West Africa, and uh, he's just put an air conditioning unit in, and uh, it says, temperature outside 122 degrees, okay? It gets worse. Temperature inside only 81 degrees. (laughs) So with the air conditioning unit on, it's crazy hot outside. It's still jolly hot inside, and they're trying to work to translate the Bible. Um, You can be told it's a hot day, but when you're in an air-conditioned unit, you think, so what? And then you go outside, and the air conditioning kind of has no impact, and you feel the force of the heat. You can be told, like I experienced on Thursday night on a treat, that a fillet steak with a peppercorn sauce on it, is just divine. You can be told that, but only I tasted it. And it was divine. In other words, there's a difference between realising something and just understanding it. You and I have no greater need than to realise the power of God. You can be stood in a ring with Anthony Joshua, and you can understand that he is the heavyweight champion of the world, I think, and he can then whack you. And then you realise the strength of his arm as you fall onto the canvas or keep going out of the stadium with the might of his right arm. You realise the heat, you realise the joy of food, you realise the strength of a boxer's arm. There's nothing more important for you and I, if we're Christians or not this morning, than to understand and to realise the strength of the God of the Bible. Verse 7 says that, Here is the God, Christians claim, who puts all the oceans into a jam jar. He's that big. The oceans are in his hand. And along with the oceans are you and me. This mighty power of God is twined with a heart of compassion and care that he knows our name. He knows the hairs on our heads. This great power is not misused. This is what J.I. Packer says in his book. The world dwarfs us all. We feel tiny before an ocean. Sang Ronan Keating, I think. You, smell, you feel small. Have you ever felt small when you stand beside the ocean? You feel small next to the Matterhorn or next to the Rockies or the Himalayas. The world dwarfs us all. But God, the God of the Bible, dwarfs the world. Is your understanding of God that big? Is your trust in the God who is this powerful, that complete? Do you feel safe in his hands? Because next to you are the oceans. He's got the whole world in his hand. It's the magnitude of his power. It's inescapable. It's comprehensive. It's absolute. And God is the only person for whom absolute power will not corrupt him or her. There's a power that belongs to God. Then there's a power that belongs to man. I'm using that as a catch-all. Man and woman. Look at verse 16 and 17. 
It says, a king is not saved by the size of his army, a warrior is not saved by the strength of his arm, but those whose hope is in the Lord, it's unfailing love. He is their shield. Now, it's a clear contrast, deliberate contrast of light and shade between the power of God and the power of a king. There's a, there's a good way to seek power, says the Bible, and there's a negative way to seek power in a human understanding, says the Bible. This is a two approaches to power. We, we want to make a difference, don't we? We're made in the image of God, and we don't just want to be another uh, person living in Epsom Manure. We want to be known for something, whether it's raising a family, whether it's doing a great job that we can be trusted at work. We, want to, we would like a bit of power and influence, and that's right, because we are made in the image of God. But the Bible says here, there's the right way to approach power and there's the wrong way. Let's look at the wrong way first. Verse 16. A king is not saved by the size of his army. A warrior is not saved by the strength of his arm. Right from the beginning of the Bible, God and his goodness said, as a loving ruler, as your God and your king, you can have absolutely everything. You can have all the food you want. You can have all the um, freedom that you can enjoy. You can know what it means to know me without sin or hindrance. You can have the lot. You can have it all. You can live in paradise under my loving rule and protection. I'll even make for you, Adam, someone who will be your closest friend and helper. Her name's Eve. But it wasn't enough. The one thing, just one thing that God said we could not have, that was not right for us to have under his loving rule, that's the one thing we wanted. We were galled, weren't we? When uh, God said, you cannot eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's just, a, just the one tree you can eat from all the rest of the others. Now, why did we want to eat that? Was it that we were hungry? No, there's plenty of other food in the garden. Was it that we wanted a tree for something? No, there are plenty of other trees in the garden. The Bible says it's about power. The reason we wanted to eat from that fruit was because we didn't trust God's goodness. We didn't trust ourselves in his hands. We didn't think that he was kind. We didn't think his purposes were sure. We thought we knew what was best. And it's still true today. The issue in the first garden is the issue in our bedrooms and living rooms and workspaces today. It's my will or it's God's will. It's what I want to do or it's how God has revealed the best to be. We want power. And until you see that, friends, your understanding of sin as rebellion, which is right, but it will be limited until you see that actually as well as rebellion, in rebellion and missing the mark, that's what sin means. We also want power. That's another part of the understanding of what sin is, according to the Bible. We want power. That is God's and God's alone. That's uh, really what's at the root of uh, marriage problems. Who's got power in this relationship? That's what's at the root of relationship problems. I want my will over my friend's will. That's what's at the base of work problems. I want to be seen for being a good worker. I want the resources that go with my 80-hour week and so on. We want power. And we think that we can do a better, God, a better job than God can in ruling our lives. But when God comes close to us, just like a pin next to a balloon. He bursts the bubble of self-sufficiency and the Bible reveals that actually we are not independent, we are not self-sufficient. Life does not work that way. Grey hairs teach you that. 
we, I, you, we are all dependent on a power that transcends us. We do not have the resources to make a good go at our life left to our own devices. We don't have everything we need. We're reliant on everything God sends our way. And if we think we can do a better job than God, it's fiction. And it's God in his mercy comes close and bursts that balloon of self-sufficiency. It's the desire to control, the desire for power, the desire for renown that go along. The distrust of the God of the Bible is at the heart of sin. Now that's why David, who wrote Psalm 33, says, verse 16, a king is not saved by the size of his army. It's not about how many horses you got and how many swords you have and how many shields. It's not about you. You can still get beat. Getting power, grabbing power, verse 18 to 20. Getting power by yourself does not save. But verses 18 to 20 say this is the appropriate source of power. Those who hope in your unfailing love, verse 18, and then into 20, you are a shield for them. Here's a different approach to power. One grabs power, like you grab a fruit from a tree in a garden. The other one ascribes power. One takes power, that leads to fear. One ascribes, one gives power away, that leads to safety. Look at the second uh, way of ascribing, of giving away power. There's a part in the Bible called 2 Timothy, where Paul writes, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. In the Bible, power is not described in a trump or a may or in an endgame kind of way. Power is described as courage, linked to godly vision. Think of a Queen Esther. Queen Esther was a great woman of courage and power. She knows that if she asks for an audience with the king, it could be the end of her life. She takes great risk. But she has the power and the courage because she trusts God to say this. If I perish, I perish. But I'll trust God, says Queen Esther. Think about Moses. Moses goes before the power of the known world, before Pharaoh. And he doesn't ask for an increase in his lunch money. He asks, oh, by the way, Pharaoh, I want you to release the whole of your workforce. I know you've got a great building project going on. I know it will succeed faster than Crossrail. But I want all the workforce back because they're God's people. Let them go. How does he do that? How does he not have a spirit of fear? How does he have a spirit of power? Because he trusts God. And he ascribes the power to God. Where are they getting their courage from? Where can you and I get our courage from? Courage does not come from the cinema. It doesn't come from an emotional moment. Biblical courage comes from a daily, daily little choices to take God at his word when actually we think self-reliance is the way to go and it always leads to failure. Look at how the passage flows, verse 18. The eyes, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, of those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Look down to verse 20. When that happens, God becomes your shield and your help. When that happens, verse 21, you rejoice. You rejoice in God's sovereign protection. As verse 22, we put our hope in him, in you. To the extent we put our hope in God and ascribe greatness to him, ascribe praise to him, give our trust away from our self-reliance into him, 
we find that he draws closer to us as we trust, verse 18, in his unfailing love. Those are two words, really. It's one word in the original language. It's this word hesed. It's the hesed word that really is the key to the whole Bible. God's unfailing love linked to his power that's unmeasurable, uncalculable, total, is a heart to display that love at the cross of Jesus. His hesed love, his covenant committing, his his never-ending, always and forever love is trustworthy. It's the gospel in the Old Testament. This is what the gospel says in the Old Testament and in the New. We didn't trust God. And so we wanted to take God away from his place and elevate ourselves into the place of authority. But God willingly pursued us. God put himself in our place. Where we failed as we put ourselves in his place, God succeeded when he put himself in our place. And he took on himself all the punishment and all the justice that we deserved. And where we failed, he succeeded by dying on the cross for us. He became human. He became incarnate. He took flesh upon himself. Jesus Christ died on the cross as the penalty for all our power grabbing. He laid aside his power so that we would get all the rewards that are his, that we don't deserve, and now ours by faith in Jesus. That's the loving kindness of Jesus. That's the loving kindness of the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be a Christian, friends. It doesn't mean to work hard. It doesn't really mean to say, I'm going to endeavor to have a fresh start tomorrow morning. I'm going to get better this week than I was last week. It will never work. Someone who's a Christian is someone who begins to see that the root of all of her problems, all of his problems, is a power grab that will never work. Because God is all-powerful and all-loving. Christian friends, for you, as we close, do you see the size of your God? Do you see the strength of his arm? Christian friend, you are not saved by the size of your library. You are not saved by the size of your army. You are not saved by the size of your attendance to church. You are not saved by your commitment to church. You are saved by the never-ending Always and forever love of Jesus. It's the only place of salvation. Everything else you've got today, we've hijacked from him. It's a a gift and resource from him to us. It's not ours, and it's come at a great cost. Do you think that your arm is as strong as God's? If you are seeking to run your life outside the loving authority of God, that's what you're saying. And here's the God who created the universe, who gathers all the oceans and puts them into a jam jar. He is that great and that strong, that kind, that trustworthy, and that good. A God this big, a God this big, you don't ask to be your assistant. You don't ask him into your life to be your friend or your secretary, a consultant or a partner. A God this big. He commands and demands your worship, doesn't he? That you ascribe greatness to him. That's his and his alone. (coughs) And what does he deserve? He deserves my heart, your heart, your life, your very all. Let's pray.